Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. I'm Franz Borsha. And today we're joined by Dr. Sam Friedman, who's Associate Professor of Sociology from the London School of Economics. Sam's a sociologist of class and inequality, and his research focuses in particular on the cultural dimensions of the contemporary class division. In addition to his academic work, since October 2018, Sam's taken up a role as one of the commissioners on the Social Mobility Commission, which regular listeners will know is a topic very close to uh, our hearts. So it's great to have you with us. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Nice to be here. So in episodes of Policy Matters, we've traditionally talked to economists uh, with the occasional academic from other disciplines thrown in for good measure. Uh, so we're really pleased to have a sociologist with us today, broadening our experience further beyond economics and finding uh, friends elsewhere to come and talk to us. Thinking about it, you know, economists can answer all sorts of uh, policy-relevant questions, but it's vitally important that our policymakers appreciate that there's more than just one way of understanding the world, of understanding how knowledge is produced, how policy impacts upon uh, people. So, Sam, in terms of methods, just tell us, how do you go about examining class and inequality in the UK? Yeah, so I'm I'm a sort of mixed mixed methods sociologist. So I tend to do quantitative work, working with um, statisticians who are much more talented than I am generally. Um, but I suppose the the difference, the main difference between economists and sociologists, which we might get into later in terms of how we measure um, social class, is that while economists tend to look at income in terms of your parents' income versus your own. Um, as sociologists, we're kind of more interested traditionally in class in terms of your occupation. So normally the measurement would then be um, your origin in terms of your parents, what your parents did for a living, and then you'd look at the distance between that and what you yourself do. I think for me, I sort of subscribe in some ways to the sort of dominant sociological um, way of understanding class in terms of um, measuring occupation, but I suppose I'm more interested in the work of Pierre Bourdieu where I suppose occupational class is really a proxy um, for what he would call sort of your stocks of capital. So economic capital, cultural capital and social capital. And in that way, you would understand somebody's social class is the sort of um, relative stocks of, of those three forms of capital and then how that positions you in a sort of class structure or a social space, as Bourdieu would put it. So it's more than just kind of how much money your parents had and what jobs they do. It's more to do with what that means for you uh, culturally, what your kind of pastimes are, what your kind of references, what your cultural references are, what you, yeah. yeah, those inherited, understood norms of how to behave in different situations and that kind of that kind of experience. Yeah, I think, I mean, just to take cultural capital, I mean, it's a kind of slightly tortured concept and it's interesting actually on a policy front because it's now been adopted by... Uh, Ofsted as a um, as a sort of category that schools should be trying to inculcate, which is kind of ironic because Bourdieu saw cultural capitalism as something that was sort of very much socially constructed and something that tended to uh, privilege the already privileged. Um, and the reason why was that he sort of saw it as a resource that was passed on in early socialization. So in the first few years of a person's life, um, parents would kind of inculcate certain dispositions in a sort of embodied sense. Um, in terms of accent, language, all of these sorts of things, as well as a particular forms of cultural knowledge um, for art, for culture, in, in that sort of sense. And the idea for Bourdieu, in a way, is that those forms of knowledge um, tend to be the forms of knowledge that are uh, legitimate within a society and, crucially, in terms of the education system, rewarded by educators, um, even though he would say at the same time those forms of knowledge are just one arbitrary form that might be out there but 
is very powerful because those impositions of power in the education system and then later in the uh, workplace tend to see them see those forms of knowledge as sort of legitimate so it's kind of you know about um, a particular type of um, art or you know you know about art you know about theater and knowing about that is somehow you know educators recognize that oh this person is you know there's some merit to that even though it's quite arbitrary as to what society you know views as, as worthy of merit but it's just so those indicators then uh, are recognized by whether schools or universities or, or employers yeah. and it's kind of somehow rewarded but it's just something that you, you happen to know about because your parents yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of seeing that every 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 sort of um, everybody has a stock of of cultural knowledge, um, but some forms are uh, valued higher in a society than others. Um, what Bourdieu would ca- call misrecognition, so misrecognized. So a particular time type of art and culture and knowledge of that might be seen as a sign that you are cultured, that you have a sort of a particular form of intelligence. It's often read that way, mm. whereas actually, you know, he would argue it's it's more that there's a match between those forms of knowledge and what those impositions of power value. I mean, it's just going back one step, it's interesting that you mentioned Ofsted there and sort mm. of just, again, taking sort of a bigger picture of the various disciplines here. A lot of this debate, certainly from economists in recent times uh, or in the last 20 years, has been cast in this kind of... Um, you know, measurement issue, you've got income versus class, and, you know, there's a lot of sort of entrenched positions, certainly mm. from the older generation of academics there. Um, but you mentioned, for example, now that Ofsted is accepting this idea of cultural capital. Do you find that in your engagement with, I don't know, let's say a new generation of academics or perhaps policymakers that um, these lines are becoming a little bit more blurred and people are sort of getting this deeper understanding of what class might be? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so I sort of certainly came into sociology and quickly had an understanding that if I wanted to be interested in issues of class, stratification, social mobility, um, I had to sort of take a position in terms of these very um, sort of entrenched, as you say, also quite antagonistic um, sort of debates about both between economists and sociologists about how you measure uh, social mobility um, but within sociology about theoretical approaches to measuring class, Bourdieu versus Weber and these sorts of things. And I suppose I um, I found that quite off-putting. I mean, I found it sort of, um, you know, these, these sort of quite siloed worlds with their own journals, with their own communities. There was very little communication. And when, it, when there was communication, it was, you know, quite antagonistic. And I suppose, I yeah, I would see that myself as part of a, a younger generation on both sides. I now talk a lot more with some of the people that were educated, for example, at Nuffield College, Oxford, where um, the sort of Goldthorpe occupational class tradition has traditionally been sort of situated. And I feel there is a bit more um, willingness um, to kind of um, cross those bridges, think about ways forward. And I mean, certainly in the research, I, I hope we're going to talk about in a sec, I've sort of tried to think about a pragmatic way that you would draw on all of those traditions to try and bring new insights to the table. I think that's just really important for policymakers to have that access at least to people working from different perspectives, right? So bringing in, as you mentioned, like mixed methods of of inquiry because we can't just understand from the numbers. We've talked a lot in, in Policy Matters about how your chances of earning a certain income, your chances of getting more education than your parents, these sort of things, but the numbers can only kind of take you so far and so uh, you definitely need a 
another way of kind of finding out what those numbers mean, why it is that way. Um, so bringing sociologists and economists and other kind of social scientists together uh, has got to be a good thing for uh, policymakers. But thinking about education, we've talked quite a lot about education as a, a policy lever that's often targeted in kind of social mobility work. Uh, with the idea, you know, if we can just improve the education of people from disadvantaged backgrounds, then this will increase social mobility. Um, but there's kind of we've touched upon in, in, in sociological literature, there's long-standing argument um, that actually education won't work because there are kind of other things about those who are traditionally more educated, this kind of middle class, will use their cultural capital and social capital all their kind of superior resources just to make sure that even if there's an expansion of education their children are still at the front of the uh, front of the queue and they've got the competitive edge in the labor market and so there are barriers that just education just can't break through and this is something that you've kind of looked at in your uh, book about um, the class ceiling about privilege and how this is still kind of uh, something that's really rewarded in in society so what did you discover uh, mm. in all that uh, lengthy research yeah, so this was a, a project that I've been sort of conducting over the last maybe five years. And I suppose the, the starting point a, li- a little bit was was along the lines you suggested there, Matt, that, you know, this sort of narrative about education being the, the great equaliser. And I suppose our sense was to, to sort of move that debate a little bit on um, from the way traditionally policymakers um, and academics have looked at social mobility, which has been more about this idea of, of, of access. So who gets into um, certain types of occupations? How does that reflect their background? And how does education um, factor into that? And we were kind of interested in this idea, well, okay, yeah, lots of people get into occupations, but not all of them then get on to to the top positions. So, you know, and again, drawing on this sort of literature between income and, and, and occupation in terms of measurement, we thought, well, well, why not look at a certain strand of occupations, the ones that tend to fo- people focus on in social mobility, our elite occupations, our sort of higher managerial and professional occupations, um, and then look at how a person's background affects their earnings once in those occupations to see, well, what's the sort of long shadow of our class origins in our sort of wider careers. And what we found was quite striking. We found that even when those from working class backgrounds make it into these top professions, whether it's law, academia, medicine, they face this really quite powerful class pay gaps, about 16%, um, compared to their colleagues in the same set of jobs who are from middle class professional and managerial backgrounds. Um, Now, you know, the obvious next step uh, along the lines you suggest is we'll say, well, what happens when we try and account for that difference using all sorts of sort of meritocratic controls? And, you know, the the data set we were working with is in some ways the most sort of um, rich that we have in this regard, the labour force survey. So we were able to kind of tease out and account for lots of things in that data set. So you can look at people who did some, got the same uh, A-levels, say, yeah, same university degree, went yeah. to the same place, subject. Yeah, even even the same jobs. even the same uh, degree classification. So, right. and what you see is that education does act as a sort of partial equaliser in relation to that class pay gap, um, but it's you know it's it's it, it accounts for, for for less than a half of that pay gap. So even even when those from um, working class backgrounds do equally well in every way we can measure. Um, and then beyond that, do equally well in all the sort of meritocratic ways we'd think about workplace performance. So, you know, they work the same hours, um, they have the same level of training experience. You still see this very statistically significant class pay gap um, still existing. 
Um, and so, you know, that was really a conundrum um, for us as to say, well, that's fascinating and in many ways a really pressing and previously kind of unobserved inequality in, in our country that captures more about this idea of progression um, rather than access. But it still left us with this question of why or what might account for that. And, you know, this comes back to your question about methods, Matt. I mean, for me, as a mixed methods sociologist, you don't stop there. You kind of go, well, how might we use other tools to capture what's going on here? So what we did was we went inside a set of elite firms, a large multinational accountancy firm, um, one of Britain's biggest television broadcasters, an architecture practice. We also spoke to self-employed actors. And in those settings, we, we conducted observation of promotion panels, of interviews, um, but mainly we did um, 175 interviews with people in those occupations, in those firms, to try and sort of tease out from people's life, um, sort of lived experience of career progression, what might be driving um, that difference in progression by class background. And so you spoke to people, um, individuals, graduates and things going to those jobs, but you also talked to the employers themselves, the people doing the recruiting, the HR departments, that sort of thing? Yeah, it was, ma- it was mainly people within those firms at different levels and from different backgrounds um, in different sorts of departments. Because, I mean, there were two effects that we found when we looked at the firms specifically, um, which is where this idea of a class pay gap morphs more into what we call the class ceiling. So, you know, in, in terms of the gender pay gap, we often talk about there being quite a significant issue of equal pay for equal work. What I think we're seeing more in terms of the class pay gap is more this issue of progression that those from working class backgrounds fail to get to the top. It's this kind of called vertical segregation. There's also interesting horizontal segregation. So often um, those from working class backgrounds kind of sorting into um, departments or pathways that have less progression opportunities attached to them. So these were things that we wanted to sort of um, try and understand through actually understanding people's lived experience. And um, a few really important sort of um, drivers emerged, which I can sort of take you through quickly if, if, if we have time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, no, we've got lots of time. I mean, I think this is all very super interesting because a lot of the work I and perhaps Matt has done sort of statistically is with these large models where you're looking at, you know, moving from class seven to one or mm. five to one, depending on what it is. But here you're actually sort of looking deep into that class one and seeing, okay, what is happening there? And you're suggesting there's this story. Well, not suggesting. You found it. <laughs> there's this story that, you know, people who do have this long-distance movement from the bottom of the social ladder to these top professions, they've arrived it, they've made it, they're making the money. Yet still, within that one, within yeah. that success, within that element that we always measure success as economists, you know, there is this problem. Mm. And... I really want to find out. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Yeah, well, I mean, we pull out three or four sort of um, drivers in the book that come out of this qualitative work. Um, One of them, I think, relates to some occupations much more than others, but does have a role to play in in all, um, is, you know, fairly straightforward and is about sort of parental wealth or what we call the bank of mum and dad. Um, you know, we sort of often think about the bank of mum and dad as important in, in, in certain elements of intergenerational transmission. So, you know, getting a getting on the housing ladder, perhaps getting into jobs through access to unpaid internships. But what was interesting was actually seeing that particularly in some of the more precarious elite occupations, so television was a, a key one, but I think there are quite a few other sort of more precarious elite occupations where contracts tend to be short term, they tend to be often quite uncertain. Um, 
what we saw was that parental sort of um, economic capital acted as this kind of form of insulation from a lot of the risks involved in forging a career, allowing those from privileged backgrounds to sort of make a whole set of decisions that were often sort of um, fairly risky, um, but had sort of long-term benefits attached to them in terms of career progression. So taking that that short-term role, deciding to, to, to go out on a limb and, and do a certain form of networking, which was fairly costly. Um, all of these sorts of things that, that actually had a, a long-term payoff, whereas sort of in contrast, and again, relating to this uh, segregation that I mentioned before, what we found among those from uh, more working-class backgrounds was actually a sense in which often decisions were made with kind of economic security in mind. So without that insulation behind you, or the, even the psychological possibility of it, if you, you know, if you needed it, people would often say, well, I'm not going to go down that path because there's precarity and uncertainty involved. I'm going to sort of segue into perhaps what I know is a less prestigious or exciting pathway, but is more economically secure. So, yeah. you know, admin sales, marketing within... Uh, television, for example, rather than the creative pathway through production. So it seems like there's a, another whole strata of sort of micro classes within these top occupations that, that people need to navigate through. Absolutely. And that, you know, if you are risk averse and people from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds tend to be risk averse and you can't overcome that risk, you know, you have a real disadvantage. Yeah. And it's a tough one because we often narrate those as sort of choice. And the point I suppose we were getting at here is it's, it's, it is choice, but it's choice that's sort of grudging, um, you know, for, for these people. They'd often, um, you know, the television was a classic case. Most people went into television uh, dreaming of this kind of creative pathway to become a commissioner at Channel 4, which is where we did our research. But, you know, actually sort of realised early on in their career that that was, un, you know, really going to be very difficult for all sorts of economic reasons. And so it sorted out. And so you could see that as choice, but it was choice that was very much mediated by these these other kind of constraints. Um, just to tell you uh, about another one, I mean, there's a narrative within sociology around career success. There's often this narrative about the strength of weak ties. So, you know, the you know in everyday parlance, you know, networking in a in a fairly superficial way. Um, what was interesting for us was when we spoke to people who had got very much to the top of these professions, they very often narrated their trajectories through the support of maybe two or three key individuals. Um, they didn't necessarily name these people as we did, but it was very clear that what they represented was kind of sponsors, people that weren't mentors, but p people who had very clearly taken them under their wing and crucially, often operating beneath the formal mechanisms of that firm or that profession, had kind of fast-tracked their career. And the interesting thing in terms of class origin was that because we knew already that those at the top tend to be disproportionately from privileged backgrounds, what was interesting was to try and go back, well, what is the ingredient that transforms everyday working relationships into bonds worthy of sponsorship? Is it sort of work performance because often these sponsor relationships would be narrated on the basis of well I just thought they were the most talented when you actually went back and understood the sort of genesis of these relationships it was often not that but actually a sort of point of, of sort of cultural similarity of, of feeling comfortable of sharing humor of sharing tastes um, that had kind of changed the nature of that relationship fairly early into a bond that then 
developed into something worthy of sponsorship. And, you know, I think that's where you see this sort of sponsorship in one's own image sort of reinforcing or acting as another mechanism that advantages the privileged. So that's picking up on what we were saying earlier about that kind of cultural capital and those shared um, common uh, knowledge and common, like almost like in-jokes within yeah. a culture. And, and so a senior person will see, oh, you know, that person... Yeah, they know about this joke. They know the punchline of this joke. They know that, and um, and then almost yeah, like oh, you remind me of a young version of me, and then that's very powerful, right? And as you say, if all the people at the top of the majority are from a certain background, then they're gonna see people from the yeah. similar background, and it's that kind of vicious circle in 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 a sense. Um, you know, the interesting thing actually is. It's not about that. That process is not about privilege. That's a, I think, a fairly human process of, um, of, of sort of making uh, connections with those who you are similar to, hemiphily, as we talk, talk yeah. about in academia. The interesting point is that you know, in the one firm where we didn't find these class ceiling effects, because those at the top were actually from fairly working class backgrounds, that was the architecture practice we were looking at. You saw, you saw the same process of sponsorship going on, but it was sponsorship of of those from working class backgrounds on the same basis. So I don't think it's the issue for me. And again, to jump forward to a policy element here is you're never going to stop people making very powerful relationships on the basis of similarity with those at work. But for what firms can do is they can prevent those in senior positions from circumventing formal procedures in order to advocate for their favourites. That's the issue, I think, yeah. in terms of this. You're jumping forward to policy here and and, uh, uh, and how we might sort of deal with that mm. uh, and firms. And there was this interesting suggestion um, recently by the General Secretary of the TUC who said that class should be treated as a kind of protected characteristic, such as race or gender, when it comes to you know uh, pay disparities or employment practices within firms, and and that's one way we could sort of legislate our way through this problem. What, what's your kind of take on that? Do you think that's feasible? Um, because it seems to me there's a lot of nebulism here uh, for all sorts of shenanigans to continue, even around legislation of that sort. Yeah. So um, I was as I spoke quite extensively to the TUC before they um, before they brought that out, and actually. I've been a sort of long-term advocate of making class a protected characteristic. Um, it is, as you mentioned, an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, and I think that's been one of the reasons why it's been off the political agenda for so long, is that people kind of look at it for the same reasons that we've been discussing and you've been discussing in your podcast, that you know, even defining what class is um, can, can be very long-winded and difficult. But I th think... E even with that being said, once you get people um, who are open-minded around the table in the way we're talking about here and you start to really hone in on what the key issues are, I think it is possible to come up with um, you know, some sort of way of characterising and measuring um, class origin in a way that could then be used in legal terms to make that experience a protected characteristic. I think I wouldn't pretend that it would be that it's going to be easy, but I think that you know just as there is a growing move among all sorts of medium and large size organisations to measure class background, and to do that effectively and to do that in a way that shows and is able to show the effects of class origin in all sorts of um, sort of workplace settings, 
it's, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of those firms would have said the same thing about even doing that sort of measurement. They would say that's impossible. Whenever we talk to people about class, no one can agree what it means. So we'll just leave it alone. And I think what people are realizing is that not only does it not go away, but without it, you're missing such a key sort of um, axis <laughs> of, of inequality in all sorts of different settings. In this case, certainly uh, elite workplaces. So I actually am, and you know, it was like one of the key recommendations in our book, um, as was this idea of trying to take what I was talking about earlier, this idea of a class pay gap and doing something similar to what's happened to the gender pay gap and getting large organisations to be compelled to report it. Um, I think these things, while certainly we're, we're some way away from them policy-wise right now. <laughs> right now, yes. <laughs> Very far away. I think we're far away from anything. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, they're things that I'm fairly passionate about um, advocating for and trying to work towards. So thinking a bit more about this kind of reproduction of social elites and the way, way that goes on in our society, um, your previous work that looked at information from 120 years of uh, who's who, and it uncovered there the dominance of certain schools in the, in the elite strata of society. Uh, so even within elites, there's kind of more more elites within the elites. Um, can you tell us just a bit about that project and what even is like who's who? Yeah. So yeah, I mean these are these are these are different projects, but there's lots of similarity between them, I suppose, in terms of us trying to get further and further towards this idea of um, of, of who's running the country, um, what their trajectories are to those positions and what sort of institutions are key um, in the process. So just to tell you a bit, Who's Who is this sort of unique catalogue of the British elite and it captures what you might call a positional elite. So you get into Who's Who largely by hitting a sort of very prestigious occupational position within a a profession in the UK. So, um, you know, uh, fellows of the British Academy would automatically be um, put into Who's Who, MPs, Lords, um, poet laureates, um, you know, upon hitting those positions, you are automatically included into who's who. So it captures this really interesting top layer of sort of positional elites in the UK and has done what really interestingly as a social scientific source um, consistently every year for the last 120 years. That sounds like a dream for kind of social science researchers. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and, you know, what's interesting is we've observed that academics have been using the source in a in a sort of ad hoc way for many years but doing it by hand by sort of it's a big red book and just sort of dipping into this red 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 book and looking at a very selective group and we were we sort of thought well wouldn't it be interesting if we could get the whole digital back catalog so you know with a little bit of um brokering we were able to convince the publishers to give us uh the data and it's just been a fascinating gold mine because it has some forms of data that you would never get in a normal nationally representative data set. Um, the most in, in, interesting, I think, um, being the individual school attended by each entrant. So what we were able to do there was sort of take this hypothesis that we obviously hear about a lot and is very relevant to today's cabinet about the propulsive power of these sort of particularly elite public schools. Um, the most um, famous being the nine Clarendon schools, so that's Harrow, Eton, Westminster, St Paul's, um, etc. And look, well, how powerful have these schools been in terms of propelling their old boys into the elite? And how's that changed over time? And what you see actually is um, actually a fairly meaningful decline in the power of these schools over the last hundred years. 
the old school tie in a way has been slightly disrupted by I think sort of some of the meritocratic changes that have occurred in 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 UK society but that it's a decline that should be very much seen in the context of persistence so um you know yes you don't quite get the same sort of fairly ridiculous um payoff to going to those schools now but you still get a fairly outrageous advantage so just to put that in context if you are an alumni in today's society of one of those nine schools you are 94 times more likely to make it into the british elite i.e who's who than someone who went to any other type of school in the uk which is a sort of fairly ridiculous mind-boggling figure i mean these are really big numbers and i remember there was a report from the sutton trust a couple of years ago about sort of independent school and access to oxbridge and you have this obviously quite a skewed function that you have, you know, a, a very small proportion of schools send a vast amount of kids to these. To these. And then even within that, you have kind of, you know, just like what you said, Westminster sends something like 100 kids per year to Oxbridge. And I went to an independent school, which, I don't know, let's say it was middle ranking somewhere along the distribution of independent school, and we would send something like five per year. And that was considered a success. So you can see just even how much more these kind of that top bit is yeah. in this in this axis and i think you know just to sort of bring together the two studies to some extent you know one of the drivers that we identified in the book as being powerful you know in, in important in terms of understanding the class ceiling generally but i think that really also probably makes sense in understanding what's going on in terms of what these schools are able to give above and beyond sort of educational resources which clearly these schools are good at but, you know, it doesn't explain 94 times. So they're good schools, but it's not just like, oh, it's a really good school and no. they get good results. There's no. something way over and above that. Absolutely. And that, one of the things that we were sort of noticing about what really helps people get on is what we call in the book dominant behavioural code. So these are the kind of the sense of, of how you determine whether somebody kind of fits in a certain occupation, but then even more so within a particular strata within that occupation. And these, is, these, these normally reflect this kind of historical residue of what type of people have done this work in the past and how they, over time, have been able to embed, even institutionalise their own ideas about the right way to be in the workplace. And I think in, in many cases, that's the legacy of, of very privileged white men um, who, in you know, the top strata of the civil service, in politics, we still see their behavioural codes have this sort of um, residue in everyday life now is kind of if you want to make it you have to be able to sort of ape the cultural sensibilities of those sorts of groups and clearly it's those schools that continue to kind of cultivate these sorts of dispositions of sort of self-presentational polish you know or, or certain types of taste that I think still continue to be quite powerful in governing you know this sort of gut feeling that somebody is kind of partner material or, you know, is, is, is going to be able to make it at the top echelons. So it's, some, it's essentially some kind of marker of privilege which is being read as, oh, that's merit, you know, this Absolutely. is merit. It just happens that, you know, these people, these, we've got some objective, what we think of objective criteria, but actually what they are is just some privilege um, that is, is being misread as, like, oh, they, like we were talking earlier, like, thinking that, oh, they must be intelligent because Absolutely. they behave in this certain way. And I think a key one here is, is the term confidence. So you often hear confidence as this, you know, actually in interviews, we always finish the interview by sort of giving the interviewee this basic data about the class pay gap and saying, well, how would you explain this? And most people reach for the term confidence. 
And it's not to say the term confidence is wrong. I think that's what people are seeing. That's what they see when they see uh, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Tony Blair in, in these sorts of settings. But I think what we're trying to say in the book is, well, what cultivates a sense of confidence? And I think what you see in particular occupational contexts is that there's a sort of a sense of a behavioral normal code. And if that normal code relates to um, or is very convergent to, you know, what you've experienced at home, at school, at university, then you are you feel emboldened, you feel comfortable in that context. Whereas, you know, what we saw over and over again was those from working class backgrounds expressing this sense of sort of intimidation, disorientation, um, bafflement at this sense of what was really necessary. You know, sort of, you know, one quote someone saying, you know, you thought it was about being right, but actually it was about being funny. And then how did you work out, you know, how you were supposed to be funny to these people? And, you know, all these sorts of opaque uh, ways of being. And, you know, I think they're kind of key. And I think it's, you know, we sort of have to move beyond this idea of confidence as being sort of a straightforward personality trait. Because uh, lots of the people from working class backgrounds would say to us, well, I'm a perfectly confident person. Put me in a context yeah. where I feel comfortable, um, you know, and, and supported. The, that's the key, right? It's the context. So you've got an entry situation or a work placement situation where it's all set up to be a very, f- you know, very familiar to people from a certain kind of background. And so naturally they feel totally at ease and confident. Whereas you take somebody who doesn't have that code of behavior, that history, that experience. Of course, they then come across as not so confident and then when the employer is looking at their objective criteria of, oh, yeah, confidence, it looks like, okay, well, we're being very meritocratic. We're, we're taking this person because they were more confident. And actually, it's, it's a kind of inbuilt reinforcing inequality. Yeah. I think that's you know, it's exactly right. And I just want to give a very quick personal example. This is something that I've personally kind of experienced in, in our setting, in academia, where as a sort of, <coughs> I don't want to say foreigner, but to some extent, I'm a foreigner, even though I had, uh, you know, a British education, all this kind of stuff. But I deal with uh, a lot of sort of senior management type people. And one of observation, one of the observations that I've had for a long time is that most of them are English, right? And we have a lot of non-English people working in our universities. And it seems to me always that there is this barrier where they can't seem to easily access management positions. And the management positions always seem to go to sort of one particular type of people who happen to embody this kind of idea of you know sharing the similar cultural capital, the same jokes, laughing about the same TV series from whatever the 1980s, which of course nobody knows about except for them, and you know that seems to be the way into these jobs. Uh, just a personal observation. I think it resonates a lot with what you're saying here about your sort of yeah. empirical work. Um, just thinking now about kind of policy and potential policies going forward. There's been a lot of talk uh, lately about uh, private schools yeah. and radical policies like the you know abolition of private schools or just merging private schools into the kind of state system how far do you think that would go towards kind of tackling some of these kind of inequalities and some of these issues with kind of perpetuating elites um i think i would be skeptical that they would be able to sort of fully address um this kind of issue we've been talking about i mean one of the things we can't pull out in who's who um, is, you know, to what extent is Eton doing things above and beyond what's happening in the families um, anyway, in terms of cultivating a particular disposition? 
I do think, though, that schools are very powerful, particularly in those kind of board, boarding school settings, sort of secondary form of socialisation, as you, as you might call it. Um, and, you know, in my mind, there is something really powerful at stake. If anything, in just a symbolic sense, in moving towards the eradication of private schools. So I'm sort of, I would, again, um, I've, I've said before in public that, yeah, I would, I would support that, but I do think it has to be thought through very carefully. And I see that at the moment, um, you know, there is a sort of part of the problem of the sort of myth of, myth of meritocracy in the UK is that it means that actually even a great, a much greater number of people than actually send their kids to private schools would support private schools still being in existence and would like to if they could send their children to private schools. Um, so I think there's a wider issue of sort of education still being as a site of a sort of arms race towards meritocratic outcomes. So you'd, I don't think removing private schools would necessarily remove that disposition. Um, you know, you'd need to work towards more wider cultural change around that. Um, but personally, you know, I am... I think it's one of those issues that um, because, perhaps because it's not a political vote winner, even those on the left have steered uh, away from. And so I am heartened that it's back on the agenda. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of involved not uh, with a couple of the groups in trying to think through, I suppose, a pathway <laughs> towards policy change around private schooling. I should also say I also went to an independent secondary school and it's a hugely important reason for why... I do the work I do because I think it was a key setting for me in understanding um, sort of how profound um, inequality was embedded at an early age. Um, and so, you know, in some ways for me, sort of feeling it um, from an early age has been quite an important motivator for, for wanting to sort of work on this stuff. Well, with that, I think we've run out of time. Uh, Sam, thank you very much for coming on. It's been incredible, insightful and interesting to have you talk about these issues. I think a lot of them are very close to our hearts and we've talked about them a lot, but this was a very interesting angle on some of the things we've discussed previously. Less quantitative and a little bit more real. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try and keep it real in future. Um, I think we could have sat and talked about this for several more hours and so uh we'll, we'll have to um talk to you again sometime sam but thank you very much for coming in thank you very much you've been listening to policy matters my name is Franz Buscher and i'm matt dixon and we'll be back next time with more <laughs>